Welcome back to the Starbase Indie Podcast, where we talk to people who are inspired by Star Trek or science fiction to work towards a hopeful future. The episode you are about to hear was recorded during our live event in November of 2023 and is part of our series on the humanities of artificial intelligence. This series was awarded an action grant by Indiana Humanities and received support from the National Endowment for the Humanities. So Thank you for the listening. The idea behind this panel is to bring in an expert on science fiction and particularly Star Trek to talk about how AI has shown up in Star Trek over the, over the generations and to have three experts on computers and technology to talk about where that is coherent with how we understand the universe currently and where it is not. So let's begin by having everyone introduce themselves. And Larry, we'll start with you because you're a little bit the odd man out on this because there's three of them and one of you. Not even at all. Um, Hi, everybody. Good morning. This is a great turnout for 11 on Sunday morning. Yay. Uh, so I'm Larry Nemechek, uh, variously known by marketing people as Dr. Trek. Uh, it's, but I did a podcast for two years during the pandemic with a geek psychologist for mental health people. We did mental health. And st- anyway, he was Dr. Ali. I was Dr. Trek. And we said one of us is a real doctor. So don't be misled by that, Not especially in the company that I'm on this panel. But uh, yes, as a fan and then uh, a writer about uh, the canon in the background of Star Trek, but I will say not so much in AI, but I was a huge NASA and space kid before I was a, a science fiction and Star Trek person. And uh, so I'm very, uh, very keen on the frontiers if it's not my profession, but uh, it's fascinating. And I'll try to add some color in the same way that the Smithsonian has the 11 foot filming model of uh, the Enterprise in amongst all the real spaceships and spacecraft and aeronautical pieces. Uh, because Star Trek's been an, not just an inspiration, but it's also over the years actually been a good, <laughs> unintendedly, uh, for the most part, beneficial uh, education tool or a bridge, and actually at times uh, a, a bridge to bring scientific frontier matters or future like debates and conversations into a dramatic form, and not always successfully, but way ahead of the curve of other TV and pop culture. And at least from the very beginning, in the original, uh, for the original pilots, Gene Roddenberry had Harvey P. Lynn, who was from the Rand Corporation, uh, as a science advisor. And Star Trek's always had a science. Now, whether the writers always listened to their science advisors and consultants was another thing. Uh, increasing, we've got Dr. Noor this weekend, uh, Aaron McDonald, Dr. Aaron McDonald, too, um, or the current crop, but there's a long storied history there. And yeah, and Star Trek, everything from the good old 60s tropes of uh, ultimate computer, whereas, you know, the computer is going to take your job, you know, we're going to lose uh, your jobs to automation, where it was that simple. So even the subtextual things that you don't think about to even femi- like giving the computer, you know, gender and, oh, that's too much, let's tone it down. You know, I just want a, a functional computer tool. I don't need a personality, et cetera, et cetera. All the way to data, the Android, uh, the EMH, the sen- becoming sentient hologram with the, the windows of programming transcend that to the point of even thinking about the computer that transcends the discovery computer on discovery that's in the future. And they're going to make it part of the crew. And one of the crew is like, whoa, whoa, do we really? Do, it's almost to the point of, don't you guys watch science fiction? Do you really want to make our computer a howl? Do you really want to do that? And then they shout down and the, and the Star Trek optimism wins out. So there's those. If I can illustrate anything among what's happening today and help out a little bit, that'll be great. So let's get all the introductions first. Uh-huh. Sorry uh, about that. No, I got no. into, You're good. You kind of hit so the content this, there, but there. Yeah, yeah. And that gives the panel a chance to ponder the things we're going to ask them about in a minute. Uh, So, Dr. Gupta. Um, Hi, my name is Ankur Gupta. I'm a professor of computer science at Butler University um, here in Indianapolis. And um, I, uh, my research area is focused on um, making Google search faster and also on two big areas of artificial wisdom and artificial ethics. Um, And I've been recently doing a lot of interesting work on that. It intersects with AI and machine learning in interesting ways, obviously. 
um, and I'm coming at it from a computational point of view. So how well can you solve problems and answer more human kinds of questions um, from a computational framework? I'm Barrett Caldwell. I'm a professor of industrial engineering and aeronautics and astronautics at Purdue University, a few miles up the road. And uh, what? Thank you. Hammer down. Um, my, my research area is actually uh, the human factors and systems engineering of team performance and human systems uh, interactions. Uh, I've been involved in a fair number of projects on human automation teaming, including an emerging area called human AI slash robotics teaming or HART. Um, I'm very careful when I uh, use the term AI, uh, but the podcast can't see my air quotes. Um, but looking at the uh, aspects and attributes of what does it mean to be an effective uh, teammate in a distributed expertise environment and how that plays out in spaceflight or healthcare or any of a number of other research uh, or applications domains. So I'm Colin McKinney. I am a, a professor of math and computer science at Wabash College. Um, trained as a mathematician, uh, but I sort of fell into teaching computing uh, five, six years ago, and um, have you know essentially almost shifted full time over to it. Um, so uh, you know, I've been working with machine learning for. Not too long, um, sort of a lot as an outsider, but then, but then now, kind of uh, teaching some of it and doing a bunch of experimental research. Um, and uh, uh, my math mathematical interest and and uh, re or research interest has been in uh, history of math. And there's a lot of really interesting uh, ways that I think we can apply AI and machine learning techniques to help us do uh, things like. Um, uh, manuscript digitization, things like that, where I think uh, uh, machine learning tools will will enable us to better do the kind of work that we've been doing for hundreds, thousands of years. Yeah. All right, so let's dive into the comparison. In the original series, the biggest version of AI was probably the computer, right? The ship's computer. Uh, yeah, the ship's computer. So how did that function as an AI? Tell us a little bit about how it worked on the show, Larry, and then we will ask our experts a little bit where that where that's real and where it's divergent. Well, in the you know, again, it's a six the original series, the sixties, you know, utopian view of the future. The the ship's computer was just a tool. Uh, once or twice going a little bit askew. So for a plot device or a dramatic device and getting a personality. But basically, it was just a very uh, you know, monotone in the verbal interface. But um, they still did touch. It was still a, not even so much a touch screen, but there wasn't so much vocal, uh, a little bit of vocal interface to it. But basically, the idea was to manually run the ship and free the humans up to do their advanced level. And that became really more a thing in the next generation 20 years earlier. But it was just meant to be a, a, a delivery device for information. And you mentioned that it went askew as a plot device a couple of times. Give us an example of, of one of those. Well, what I started to allude to, it wasn't the ship's computer, it was the next, the next level computer that was being tested, the M5. And the whole conceit, again, it was the 50s, 60s, are you going to lose your job to a computer? And in this case, it was Kirk being a captain. And of course, they weren't ready for it. But the flaw was, in, it wasn't the idea so much as the flaw of the programmer, who, went, who was a genius, who was a disgruntled genius, and was trying to find his boyhood success again, and impressed too much of his human engrams into his programming. And, the computer, you know, and so Kirk had to talk down another computer. Um, there are a lot of cases of alien cases, you know, speaking of... Well, let's Kirk start yes, 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 yes. Have, Let's have the, the technology experts talk yeah. about that. The, obviously, we have... It wasn't, the, you know, and in the original series, it wasn't really treated ominously. It was more a case of something, again, again, like it, the computer's going to get your job. But there wasn't an overall, I don't want to say ominousness to uh, AI. Okay, so how does that map, and how does the how does the, the time. yeah? 
No, but how does that map now to what we're seeing, right? right, is that, right. That, that was the future, right? It was just the past version of the future. Okay. So, you asked me about so I, I think in one sense, um, this is another example of uh, something that we expected to take 400 years that took about 40. Um, and if you look at the, vo the voice assistants now, uh, Google, uh, there's a Google version, there's a Siri version, there's an Alexa version. And all of those are actually doing that level of functioning. They are providing um, information. They're being able to report on status. Uh, if you ask the weather report, it will go to a local weather uh, uh, report for your area like your, your phone or your watch will do. Um, and in that sense, it is a selectable voice interface to provide you information about the state of the world. And we have that now. We've had it for about 10 years uh, in various guises. And there is relatively little personality in those voice assistants. They are information delivery devices. Um, but I will say that as we talk about um, the future of long-duration spaceflight, there is a decided need to have that level of capability on board the spacecraft because you don't have enough human uh, workload availability or task performance capability to monitor all the ship's systems. So a, a vocal assistant or a, an automated assistant that would allow you to ask, so what's the status of the engines right now, the same way we ask the status of the weather, that would be a tremendously um, useful functionality, which we are current, not me personally, but uh, others that I work with are in the process of trying to figure out how do we enable that level of computer support and voice um, multimodal interaction with an onboard computer. I'm so, computational folks, you guys weigh in too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it wasn't very advanced as far as I understand um, at the time. It, I think um, uh, treating it as an interface to provide information or updates is a, is a very normal thing. And even today, we uh, utilize that same concept um, very regularly. You know, um, we have had our... <clears throat> uh, massive commercial airline jets flown by autopilot almost completely for the last 40 years, 50 years, something like that, um, with only a minimal input um, from the human uh, pilot that's there, um, or at least minimal need for that interference. 95% of, of a plane's operation is automated. Um, today and has been since the 80s, I think, um, and possibly even before. Um, so I think, I think the notion that you have um, a computer system that is managing most of the detailed complexity and the, and the pinging and the making sure that everything works just fine is a, is a great reason to use computers. And, and I didn't see that as particularly overreaching um, at that time. Yeah, I think, um, you know, one of the, the challenges, at least with uh, voice assistance um, and, and, and things of that sort in, in a spacecraft or spaceflight application um, would be, you know, where the, the processing is actually taking place, um, you know, with, with Google or Siri or whatever. Some of the processing is taking place on your phone, but not the whole thing, right? It's uh, querying a server that that has of course a lot more computational resources than than what's in your pocket um you know the phone is doing the the voice and decoding or encoding and 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 some of the the stuff for, uh, but but most of the processing is not happening locally and there um you know in in space flight or something else you would need to have local processing of all of that data um, and and the the hardware in order to do that, which I think in, in a spaceflight application would be you know presents an interesting challenge because you have to have something that's as low power as possible given the the constraints of of spaceflight systems, um, radiation hardened things like that um, that you know the, the the science fiction or at least in the um, even in current 
Star Trek. I don't think there's really uh, you know much much discussion about um, what environments the computer can operate in. As opposed, you know, they seem to be more worried about oh well, there's radiation, so that's going to pose a risk to the crew. Not it's going to pose a risk to the, to the uh, to the computer uh, devices. Um, yeah, so I mean, in, in the next, or sorry, the uh, original series, right, is is sort of very. It, it's interesting to see sort of the past version of the future, as as uh, Lisa mentioned, um, and you know, sort of to contrast that to uh, later stuff. Like, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll grant Lower Decks is a bit slapstick um, in in its in the humorous approach to it, but you know, the, the they've got the the vault of evil AIs and. Uh, <laughs> Um, the 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 um, the planet AI that they have to fix up and and uh, things like that. So, uh, but but yeah, I think uh, Lower Decks presents sort of a different view of it, and and again, it's it's from a humorous view as opposed to a more serious view. Um, but you know, we see that certainly in the the more serious stuff, say in Discovery or uh, with what was it, the command system that or the AI that uh, they had to go into the future control. That's oh, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, the, yeah. yeah. So discovery is yeah. big bad. Well, real quick, since you said original series, it's interesting historically to look at where the '60s was, and then again talking about Star Trek trying to keep ahead of the real technology, whether it's flip phones and com, you know, badges, or but but in this sense, just going from the '60s to the '80s and restarting Next Generation, and all of a sudden. I mean, you remember in the original series, Gary Seven was the alien future human helper, and when he talked to his selectric typewriter, it was a cool – like, they didn't even do that in the Federation at the time. And that was, a, oh, look how advanced he is. Just, and he's just dictating the way we, you know, dictate chat GPT or whatever. And, but by the 80s, to make it mainstream, it was that whole notion of Gene really won. In fact, the originally, he said, I don't want people hunching over consoles pushing buttons anymore. The ship – computers should do most of this and our people should sit around basically in in lounges and do the really upper level exploring stuff and uh, but that was that was just the leap we got from the 60s to the 80s and the people's and that was barely the dawn of like personal computers you know Macs and PCs had barely been around for just a handful of years and ever since then it's been a struggle to keep up with ahead of the curve is but what the what's the everyday mundanity of it and then what's the dramatic potential for things going wrong or alien perspectives or or whatever. So, technology thoughts on any of that? Well, I, I think, uh, Larry, you've got a really great point about what what I'll call fu function allocation and, and the dynamics of who is doing what and who has the autonomy to do what at any given moment. Um, so that is one of the really strong reasons as we've moved forward on this timeline to talk about what it is that we want the computer to do um, versus what we're going to free up the human to do. Um, I think it, it's fascinating, not just from the original mindset of let's not have an image of humans pressing buttons, but even the idea, oh yeah, we can do this with touchscreen. We can have these tiny um, disks that, that will hold you know, encyclopedias worth of knowledge. Um, it it all did seem really, really far uh, far away, but without an understanding of Moore's law and how that was going to affect our our daily life. So I think now, really, the the question of if you were going to try to stay ahead of current technology, it is after we had an AI crisis, how do we interact with the technologies? That's almost why I say when, when, there is no, when there's a Star Trek fallow time, it's almost like there has to be to let like from the 60s to the 80s or from even 2005 to 2017, there almost has to be a cultural reset. Um, I mean, TV and broadcast and distribution technology evolves, but also if Star Trek is going to keep being this commentator, user and commentator on technological interface with real life, and then you portray that realistically in drama, uh, 
you have to have a reset to, to take your breath and catch up and have some distance and realize where technology is, where the culture is, and dealing with it. And then, be, you know, because now we can watch and it's cute to hear Spock talk in the 60s talk about memory banks and, you know, the, just the terminology and the vibe of the time. And then you update that to watching them vocally interface and it's no big deal and, and deal with coming up with, you know, like they came up with giga, what, kilo quads. When they come up with even things like, you know, units yeah, computer techno babble. Right, right. Yeah. Coming up with, yeah, updating the techno babble yeah. just to stay halfway relevant with the time. So speaking of techno babble, uh, and, and and Uncle, I'm sorry, this is you're at a disadvantage here because you're not a, a huge Trek fan, but so you're exempted from this if you'd like to be. But uh, Barrett and Colin, are there examples of the way computers show up in Star Trek that make the scientist in you? Cringe, and what are they? That's good. I, I'd say no. Um, nothing makes me really cringe, um, in the sense that you know we're just not there yet in in many cases. So I I, I don't think that. Um, I can think of any any of the sort of computer examples or AIs or whatever where it it's not at least plausible in some sense sometime in the future. Um, yeah, nothing, I, don't, I can't think of anything that makes me cringe. Yeah. I mean, there's plenty of other things in the show that make me cringe, <laughs> but <laughs> right. But but the computer and AI stuff, I, I can't think of an example. So. So yeah, I, I I would support that. Um, I don't get upset by the concept of a gigaquad at all, um, because I I think that's a really a, a curiously interesting question about what happens if you can reset the fundamental uh, information theory of uh, digital processing to having more than two states. And from an electrical engineering standpoint, two states is really straightforward, and that's what you do with a relay. If you get the ability to have four or eight states, and that's what they're talking about with different types of quantum computing, how many states can you have and reliably resolve them, that is a tremendous advance. You do that plus stacking the, the, the chip architecture itself and now all of those things about what you can put on board start to become viable. My issue becomes when the computer starts projecting off of no or too little data to give you these estimates of what it thinks it is. Um, it's a big wide universe out there. And we don't even do a very good job of recognizing life forms on this earth. So being able to take very limited sensor data and say, we know what this is, we can have an image of it, but um, we don't know what that is until we have somebody pain, so much pain. Um, that was an identification of completely alien form of existence. And the computers, I don't think, really ever got there very well. Well, you say that, and now it made me think of all the time, starting with Spock and data and whoever the science people were reading scans and sensors, to say we have very little is known, the, we're getting very little. So, you know, they try to quantify and say, you're wanting me to make a projection, you're wanting me to make a guess, we're getting very little, and trying to, trying to asterisk that and say, you know, you're asking for projections and guesses. And I'm telling you, if I do, it's it's based on very little, in whatever the different you know situation was. But somebody would always try to quantify that, and it wasn't always just oh, computers say, blah blah blah. I mean, and that's a there's lots of sloppy science and lots of process, but many times they would try to. I'd not thought of it that way until you mentioned it that way. But trying to gauge, you know, as I'm passing along the information from the tool to me to you to the decision makers. Uh, here's here's the here's the asterisk. I will remain exempt. <laughs> now, in terms of, of cringe, subspace makes me more upset. Um, oh, how? Well, as a theoretical or, or 
So yeah, as a theoretical, and I haven't, I actually haven't seen a science fiction series that gets it right of how much light time delay messes with your ability to communicate and coordinate. So as a plot device, you have to have it. Otherwise, nobody gets to talk to anybody. Um, but as a reality, right now, we don't get to talk to Mars for another week or so because it's on the other side of the sun. There's no communication path. When it becomes available again, it's 20 minutes. Okay. So the reality is this. It makes for a really boring episode. <laughs> um, but that sort of 20 minutes behind what's going on after two weeks of not knowing anything in comms is really kind of frustrating and it limits how much you can do with coordinated knowledge. So I get subspace, I get the instant, uh, you know, earth to moon on for all mankind. I, I, I get it, but it pisses me off. <laughs> okay. I, I, Don't get him started I feel, on the I feel dust purged in, now. Yeah. <laughs> in the Martian. Um, so to, be, to be fair, they did talk about having relay booster networks and grids to relay signals, and the frontier people are much further out than the, or they try to. There's still the speed of light. Like, there, <laughs> which there are limitations. Am I breaking the thing? Yeah. 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 Um, first, I'm going to uh, let some of the folks that came in late know, if you have questions, please write them down because this is being recorded. And I'm happy to ask them. In fact, we're going to start right now. This one says that the potential of the land and computer to control an entire society. So it's not a question, but it's kind of a nugget. And I think probably many of you know enough what, what that means to, to speak to it. Yes? Landau. Landau. Oh, see, well, handwriting. Oops. Landrew, yeah. yeah. I mean, what we've been talking mainly about the everyday mundane Federation Starfleet of the different centuries, just application, but we haven't really talked about the goofy, dramatic. <laughs> uh, I say goofy, but like now you're going to, because it's not us, it's them, and what do we encounter? So what can, our, what, can a, what can a creative, hand in hand with a science consultant, come up with for the plot of the week, for the drama potential of the week? And so you're talking about, I'm, I'm curious, because we're talking about cringy. What, forget Starfleet and the Federation, what about all those... Going back to the '60s and the you know, the computers that Kirk would you know talk down and drive into a, all the way to the 10C of discovery and some of the alien life that we've encountered. But that's what your question askers. But it's about the the computer controlling the whole society. Right, right. Yeah. The Landrews and the Vols and all that. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the Matrix was pretty cringe. Um, I think. Uh, <clears throat> I think the notion that a computer system would control society make, you know, just the premise has so many pitfalls from a, from a computing point of view um, that, that uh, it has no fallacies, it has no flaws, it, it, you know, it has no weak points. There are lots of these kinds of notions and then there are human beings fighting against uh, whatever it is that the, to create some kind of utopian or dystopian society um, I I mean that's not <clears throat> that's not plausible to me for millennia at the very least I don't think that that's realistic I don't think it's possible um, so to me the entire premise just seems ridiculous um, and I'm going to argue with you Oh, great. extremely okay. violently. Yes. Okay. I'm excited about this. All right, let's do it. Yeah. Um, actually, you, you used exactly the example that, that I started thinking about. Right now, tomorrow morning, if you were going to do a Cyber Monday thing, your ability to obtain credit is based on a computer algorithm. If you were to go and look for a new house and get a mortgage, that is based on a computer algorithm. And many people, when they go in and type in the data, they are not willing, capable, or thoughtful enough 
to actually query the response that comes back. Okay? So the, you might have had an identity theft. You might have had just you happen to have a similar name to somebody else. They might have fat-fingered their data entry. And if that, that comes back wrong, you are marginalized from participating in the economic society that we have right now, and there is very little response that you can have. So I see it not more than 25 years off that people will have that level of passive acceptance of what algorithms are, are doing and responding and profiling uh, humans of all types. And I want to push back also. It's not that the Landrew is flawless or impeccable. It's that by the time the flaws are evident, the humans are no longer able to understand how to fight it back. <clears throat> or even if they should. Or what they can't, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll maybe um, add, I was, I was sort of thinking of uh, more of the, uh, thinking of this question as, as sort of a scale issue, right? That there are, are certainly places in current society, credit, um, we were talking about at the last uh, AI panel, um, is, is one example. Um, and, and I think from a science fiction perspective that, that maybe gives us another uh, example of, of where this could end up happening uh, in the not-too-distant future. Uh, so there's the uh, episode of Voyager where um, uh, the EMH becomes – he's a doctor and he's serving – in this, this alien healthcare facility that has this computer resource allocator. And uh, eventually the computer resource allocator re realizes that he, the, the doctor, is himself sort of a, a, a resource and starts to allocate him how much time does he have to treat in, in addition to the medicines and all the other things. Um, and uh, th that episode uh, has, you know, sort of differential levels of healthcare in the sense that, like, if you're in the lower class, you're in sort of a, you know, 1950s style sanitarium at the at the bottom level, and all the way up to sort of the concierge kind of medicine. Um, so I, I think of that example as as maybe one where. Uh, it's completely plausible that that we could end up with with something like that. Um, I think computationally, the the resources are there to do it. Um, it's it's more of the ethical question: Do you know, do, do we want to go down that path? Um, the credit example uh, is is one certainly where you know we've already gone down that path for better or for worse, um, and you know in that case, I think at, at least now. You know, when you're you're trying to get, say, a mortgage or something, you're you're usually working with a loan officer. Where, hopefully, there that human agency of of if something did get fat fingered or wait a minute, this doesn't look right, or you've been denied, but yet you have great credit. Like, wait a minute, why is this happening? Um, the the start or the 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 Landrau example, right? I, I think is uh, uh, it's a good point, Larry. About you know, by the time there's a uh, or, or as Dr. Caldwell said, right, by the time there's a problem, it's humans don't have the ability to fix it anymore um, in the same way that, uh, you know, if we could imagine, for example, um, you know, the Voyager space probe, you know, we, we get it and it's on my desk suddenly. Uh, how would I even go about fixing that computer, right? Nobody knows how to work with that kind of hardware anymore. Uh. And in 200 years, certainly, there'll be absolutely nobody. The, I was just said the episode you're talking about with the doctor and the, and the layered, it was called Critical Care? Yeah. And meant to be a commentary on health care, like very, a little bit on the nose, but an old school Roddenberry-esque commentary episode. But the idea of, aside from the ethics and that dilemma, the technology behind the system that that planet is using was the, the, allocate, the resource allocation. I hadn't even considered it until then, but just to say the sophistication of their, because it was kind of presented as a corollary to our level of development, but I don't know that we have that advanced. Yes, we, we do. We do? We do that level of resource allocation now. 
We do it with transplant science. We do it with uh, emergency room allocation. We do it with uh, critical interventions, especially for expensive drugs. And we have similar mismanagement, especially when you look at um, racial ethnic differences in presentation of disease. They've only in the past couple of years redone one of the critical algorithms for kidney function that had a literal racial correction bias that was not based in science. Um, and there's right now a question of how well a pulse oximeter will read uh, oxygen levels based on the darkness of, of your skin and, and the interaction of the and Does of the that IR. come in from program error conscious or unconscious? I mean, what is, when those have developed and they're corrected finally, do, is there a trace back to how it evolved that way? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, there are trace backs and in many of the cases, the trace backs are based on... Um, Just blinders? Uh, I, not just blinders, but willful disregard or ignorance of the common humanity of the people being treated. Well, somebody originally programmed that. They programmed a pre-computer belief system mm -hmm. into the code. It was a... Conscious or unconscious. Oh, it was highly conscious. Yeah, was yeah. Con I'm, yeah. I'm not trying yeah. to, to deflect, but I'm saying it could be, but it, or it, worst case, uh, intentional, yeah. Yeah, it was a high fidelity implementation of the opinion of the culture at the time, uh -huh. which means that it was uh, racist and so biased. How far, so how, <laughs> yeah. well, how far back are we talking that origin decade? Are we talking just 50s, 60s? I mean, like from to the mighty oaks of today, supposedly. What are we, I mean, many, many of the... 20 years ago, 50 years ago? Many of the computer systems we use today in these system critical things were written... <clears throat> in Fortran or C, so those are okay. 70s and 80s kind okay. of thing, and many of them have not been updated because there are millions of lines of code, and it's a very tall order to rewrite or write to write or rewrite that code. And and the the epidemiology or the medical care um, required to say this is what these numbers mean. Um, in many cases, those date to maybe the 20s to the 40s and the advent of better microbiology, um, but also a, just a misunderstanding or a misrepresentation or just biased beliefs about some people have thicker skins and are un, un, incapable or insensate to pain. Yeah, the pain threshold conversation is a particularly challenging one. I feel like um, I just saw a documentary that was bringing this point. Yeah, yeah. The misrepresentation of pain, but yeah. So much pain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of <clears throat> some of that has stemmed from just human doctor interactions. Um, that, for example, people of color and women. Um, <clears throat> are ignored when they indicate pain levels of seven and eight, for example, right. whereas for, you know, more <clears throat> white men, for example, a pain level of seven or eight generates an entirely different medical response. Um, so. And the origin of the word hysteria. Yeah, I had my hip replaced almost exactly a year ago, and the doctor fought doing it because he told me my reported pain was discordant with my imaging. And after the surgery, he said, oh, that was a lot worse than I thought it was. Was it? Was yeah. it really? Huh. Yeah. Yes, it really was for him. Yes. Right. It was. Absolutely. Anyway, um, so let me shift on to a different question. M may I try to answer a slightly different question? Sure. Um, this, is, this is a project that I actually do have some familiarity with. I've done some work on this. Um, when you have a, an astronaut trying to complete a procedure, it would be interesting to have a virtual agent know that astronaut well enough to know how they prefer to see the procedure written out. Should it be in text bubbles? Should it be um, uh, paragraph style? Should it be off to the upper left or the lower right of their field of view? All of those things. 
And in that sense, I see that the capabilities of an agent could assist and support and enhance the task performance. In no way whatsoever do I want the language model to rewrite the procedure, ever. So being able to know where in the procedure we are, okay, that, that is conditional assessment and a, a suitable I wouldn't call it a language model, but a task sequence model would be able to say, here's the current state, here's where we are in the operating range, therefore when you get to this um, procedure step, here are the other things that you may want to check on. But that's not rewriting the procedure, that's a contextually relevant uh, presentation of the procedure. That would be cool. Um, but that, but a generative language model is not useful there. Um, okay, so I've got a whole other one here, and this uh, it's only speaks. Four lines. No, this one, <laughs> and it actually speaks back to uh, Barrett's conversation about subspace comms, and says Star Trek Voyager addressed the subspace comms delay as they got closer to the series run. Did they not? So, how did did Voyager talk about the? Do, oh, we're talking yeah. about the whole project, whatever it was, that uh, Pathfinder, that they set up a complicated bouncing off of whatever uh, anomaly. That they, Yes, they were obviously, the whole point of the show was they were isolated. Then it got down to the end of the series, and suddenly they didn't want to be cut off. And they wanted to have the emotional moment of having contact again. And contact like ham radio, and then later on contact with actual... Uh, basically instantaneous video, which was a stretch even then. But coming off with a some kind of a wacky bounce it off here, relay this, and then feed into a you know you and using the Herogen alien network to get that started and kind of duct tape and bailing wire um, a thing to get home with and everybody be ingenious. But it's coming up with alien ways of of new new. I guess that's what the question's about. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. And, and and I wanted to ask Barrett if that, that example made you less annoyed with the whole concept, or is it still? To, um, full disclosure, I don't recall um, that example from the series. Um, but that, that would be less cringe, and it would be fascinating. Um, ooh, plot device. Um, but plot device in a different world. So I'm wearing some stuff from the uh, game Starfield. There is actually a mission in there. It's considered a side quest where you are dealing with a planet, a planetary colony ship that has been isolated for a couple of hundred years. And one of the challenges is if people forgot that they were out there and the ship no longer has um, compatible comms with anybody else, you have a mutual non-understanding of who they are, what they're doing, why they're there. Um, and that, that process of reestablishing communications across the cultural gap and across the experience gap is a pretty um, uh, psychologically disruptive, if not overwhelming, experience. And there, there are a couple of Star Trek examples of, of that. So one uh, from, I think, season two of uh, The Next Generation, where they the, there's the – and it, it, this one is very humorous and a little slapstick, but there's the, the sort of uh, – uh, you know, um, hillbilly group, and then there's the group of of really techno uh, technology um, loving, and uh, that they they have to start cloning themselves because not enough of their people survived, and then their planets have to kind of merge. Um, but then also, I think in Enterprise there was one where they they come across a sort of early human colony that something horrible happened and they lost all communications and a lot of their the the technological resources and had they they sort of as a group regressed into almost cave dwellers and and the the um i think it was interesting in that episode because the the, the writers really um 
tried to make the language that the people spoke. It was still English, but the words that they used for things and the way that they said, for example, that that's, uh, you know, that's a lie or, or that's garbage. They, they used sort of a different phrase that was contextually relevant to the, the planet that they were on and, and sort of the challenge of how to, to reintegrate uh, those people was, uh, was, you know, sort of the whole point of the episode. Um, I think the Enterprise one was did it in much less of a slapstick kind of way. Yeah, that's uh, Terra Nova that you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Lost Colony. But they had de-evolved and had... Yeah. It was like pigeon... It was almost like now looking at Victorian... Not Victorian, uh, Elizabethan English compared to like old Middle English right. coming forward almost in reverse. And then up the long ladder was the other one where the colony ship had, had dropped some people... 300 years earlier right. and the two societies had, had gone different ways. Right. And and Data was <laughs> that was funny, you know, like somebody had to load the ship and then they look at the manifest of, you know, all these computers and all this like livestock and they're, they're trying to figure out why on earth <laughs> would somebody have like this particular batch of cargo and then the, when they meet the Bryn Lloydy and any chance you've heard from the other colony and they're like the other colony and <laughs> uh, yeah that was a funny episode but yeah a little, can I, can I uh, yeah. ask a question I'm, we're talking about the cringe factor like what are they doing What's a what's a concept, and I hate to just say AI and broad brush it, but what is a concept in your fields that you think is ripe for being used as a dramatic, like it's being overlooked or ignored or not being utilized? That could be a great you know human drama aspect in any whatever sci-fi generically or or even in a modern day drama. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of. Um, Melodrama about current day. So let me let me say uh, some Star Trek or something similar, a future thing, because we have enough AI uh, scare stories happening right now. But what's a what's a good legit aspect of any of your work that you say? But you know this would make a good story if and set it in whatever century. I think if you had <clears throat> an AI that had this uh, very consistent and persistent hallucination, um, and uh, and then you had. I don't know, a group of people that either believed it almost religiously or with faith or something, and they chased it down, then they figured out that it was uh, just a facade or something. I think that would be a cool plot device. Um, basically, that the AI got something wrong, but there is so much faith in the fundamental structure of that AI system that, uh, that it was treated or assumed to be blindly correct. So, yeah, Almost as if you were deifying... Yeah, uh, I'm just AI. thinking that's yeah. Republic Book Seven all over again in some yeah. sense. But uh, yeah, so you, you actually highlighted an idea as a as a plot device. <laughs> really, um, we have talked about all, all these times where the culture deifies the AI. What if an AI actually achieved enlightenment and the way we talk about great souls in, in current philosophical religious traditions, they achieve a, a type of insight that then becomes too difficult to communicate back to the rest of the society. And they have to do it in terms of allegory or analogy or metaphor. What if you had an agent that was just wandering around doing its processing, doing its processing, and then got cosmic insight as, a, as an outcome of its data processing, the same way that we could take any of our great teachers now. And then the AI has the true, the agent, let's not, I hate that term AI, the agent now has the burden and Cassandra problem of trying to communicate its insight back to its people. Or what if it's just conflicted about whether it even should? Well, that's part of the insight. Right. That's part of the enlightenment. Yeah. Are they ready for it? Can they handle it? I don't know. 
Am I supposed to guess? I don't know. What is the meaning of this? I don't know. What are they going to do with it? I don't know. Those are questions that embodied software agents don't handle well. Yep. There's actually a story, a short story out on Amazon right now by John Scalzi, who, if you were on the dance floor last night, happened to be our DJ, that about an, a computer that is piloting a starship and the humans sent it off with a certain mission and it changed its mind along the way. Uh, so you know, I forget what it's called, but it's fantastic. Uh, sorry. Oh, her V'ger. In other words, a complete a complete inversion of the evil AI taking over the planet. Right. It's what's the vanilla of you know, AI and it's moral. It's and and moral it wasn't trying to do that. It just learned. Right. Oh, great. I'm stuck with this responsibility on my field for it. You are the chosen one, right? Yeah. You're... Why has this burden been placed on right. Yes. What's, what's, the, uh, what's the robot in uh, Hitchhiker's Guide? Oh, Marvin. Marvin? Yeah, Marvin. Not quite, a not quite so depressed AI is wondering what to do with this responsibility. So, tragically, time is not flexible at a science fiction convention as it is in a science fiction story. Um, and so we are essentially out of time, but I know Larry's going to go back to the vendor room. And so if y'all have questions, and I don't know where my other panelists are headed, but I'm sure you can corner them in the hallway if you have additional questions for them. Just ask, wrestling me to the ground is not necessary. No, today. it is not. And also, also, I have done a poor job in programming in leaning into this, but this will make up for a teeny fraction of that. So Dr. Caldwell, why is it that you are wearing Starfield things specifically? Uh, Speaking of AI. Thank you. Um, there, There is a new game out. Um, I guess this might be an advertisement. There's a new game out from Bethesda Game Studios called Starfield. It, it it has an interesting set of stories, but one of the main non-player characters, actually one of the first ones you meet uh, after the tutorial, is a starship engineer named Barrett, who looks frighteningly like me. <laughs> Sounds uncannily like me. And even, well, I mean, just in terms of the cadence, but also the sorts of things that he says. Um, and so uh, the, these items that I'm wearing are gifts from the, from the game development team, uh, sort of as a thank you for being a part of their Starfield family. That's awesome. All right, friends. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Starbase Indie Podcast. And thank you again to Indiana Humanities and the National Endowment for the Humanities for supporting our series on the humanities of artificial intelligence. Find all of the related episodes as well as transcripts and discussion guides on our website at starbaseindie.org slash podcasts. To find out more about what we're doing now, including our live event coming up in November, check us out at starbaseindie.org or follow us on social media at Starbase Indie. See you on the Starbase.